Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I am your co-host, Scott Parkin, not Parkland, Parkin, uh, in... Berkeley, California. And as always, I'm joined by Bob Bazanko in Ohio. Beautiful Ohio right now. It's like 62 and sunny. And uh, as always, we want to thank all of you for listening and watching. Our numbers are getting bigger and we really appreciate your support and um, share these, please, you know, retweet them and put them up on Facebook or Instagram or wherever you can and let people know because we're talking to like really cool people who often don't get a voice elsewhere. And I think it's, you know, it's important to to get these things out there for as many people to hear as possible. So we appreciate all your help and support. And as we've made our move into the video realm on YouTube in the last two months, uh, please go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. We need as many subscribers as possible. Ben Shapiro has almost a million subscribers and we're, that's our goal is to beat Ben Shapiro. So uh, today we are joined uh, by Joshua Frank, uh, old friend, old friend of mine. Uh, Joshua is a uh, award-winning investigative journalist, author, and editor covering current political and environmental topics. Uh, along with Jeffrey Sinclair, he is the co-editor of the political magazine and website Counterpunch. His work appears in the Seattle Weekly, the OC Weekly, and regularly at Counterpunch. And then he is the author and co-editor of numerous books, including Left Out, Red State Rebels, Hopeless, uh, and The Big Heat. And we're very excited to have Joshua here today. We're going to talk about wildfires. We're going to talk about climate politics and a few other things. Uh, welcome to Green and Red Podcast, Joshua. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. I'm a big fan. Thanks. Uh, we, we aim to please here at the Green and Red Podcast. Just kind of like kicking it off. The last number that I looked at, over 35 people have been killed uh, in wildfires throughout the West. Five million acres or more burned. At one point within the last two weeks, uh, at least 10% of the population of Oregon was under evacuation order. This has led to some of the worst pollution in the world in places like Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. And then also exacerbating this, which we're going to get into this a little bit, hopefully, is that some of the hottest days in recorded history have been recorded in Death Valley and Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I guess kind of like kicking off, do you want to talk a little bit about the length of climate crisis and what we're seeing throughout the West? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I think so, sort of one of the scary things that we're facing right now where I am in Southern California is we haven't even really hit fire season yet. It usually happens more in October when we start seeing some Santa Ana winds, uh, which are those, you know, cold and dry conditions that push wind through the Great Basin down into the desert and then obviously through the Los Angeles area and Southern California area in general. And even before that happens, uh, which will happen eventually here, uh, we already have the biggest fire we've ever experienced in LA County going on right now. Um, last I looked, it was at, I don't even know how many hundred, how many acres, um, but it was threatening Mount Wilson. I think it's well over a hundred thousand acres at this point. Uh, there's an observatory up there. Uh, we've already had evacuation orders for some of the foothill communities that normally don't experience these kind of things, like parts of Pasadena, um, 
So, you know, it's, we as people that live down in Southern California, and I grew up in Montana, I didn't really experience it up there as much as I do down here, that wildfires are a part of the ecology. Uh, but what is a little bit more frightening is when we see what's happening up in places like Oregon and the rainforest areas where they have not experienced these sort of conditions in the past. And the obvious link between climate change and these wildfires is very apparent. On both sides of the Cascade mountain range in Oregon, they're in severe drought conditions right now and have been for quite some time, coupled with the really strange winds that are very much similar to the Santa Ana winds that ripped over the Cascades and spread those fires up there uh, into very dangerous conditions, ripping through old growth forests, threatening all types of communities. Uh, Jeff St. Clair, my co-editor, had to evacuate. Um, and then, of course, it pushed all that smoke into Portland area and all the way to the coast. Um, and that's very, very strange. Um, but I think it's this new strange, right? It's a, it's a new reality that we're facing that's definitely being exacerbated by the climate chaos that we are living in. It's, it's interesting that when you're, when we hear about wildfires and when it reaches the federal level and when there's actually a response from the Trump administration about it, it's always around uh, active fire management, like mm -hmm. in forested areas. There was a little bit of a back and forth between Trump and Newsom when Trump was in Sacramento last week um, about this. But, you know, how much of a factor is this? Does active fire management increase, decrease fires, that sort of thing? Well, that's a really in, important conversation that I think a lot of people aren't really clear on and understanding. I mean, of course, the, the Trump administration, aside from the fact that you can't just clear dead leaves in, you know, coniferous forests, with how ridiculous that is, um, fire suppression efforts have drastically increased over the years. You know, back in the mid 80s, it was under $500 million a year. Um, now it's radically changed. It's well over $2 billion a year. Um, just to keep up with the fire restoration and, and fire management within the Forest Service. So it's not just about, you know, clearing underbrush, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, controlled burns, all of these things. The scientific evidence is very clear that forest management is not the reason why, or lack of forest management is not the reason why we're experiencing these extreme wildfires. Um, the reason we're ex experiencing these extreme wildfires is because, one, we've always experienced wildfires. Um, the number of wildfires annually hasn't necessarily increased, but what has increased is the impact they're having and the ferocity of, of, of the fires themselves. And ignoring the link between climate change, uh, climate catastrophe, and these wildfires is a grave mistake. So someone like Trump and the Republican Party that doesn't even believe it exists isn't going to give us a fair, you know, they're not going to listen to the scientists on this. They're going to listen to bureaucracy. Uh, and unfortunately, despite what they say or do, we are going to be living with these fires for the foreseeable future. So, you know, we need to adapt to that. We need to um, think about forest management, if you want to call it that, in a completely different way. Um, and the reason that we're hearing about a lot of these fires right now, I mean, 2 million acres burn almost annually up in Alaska, but the reason we don't hear about that is because there aren't a lot of properties threatened. So on, in the West, as we've expanded into uh, more rural areas, more forested areas, uh, the exurban, you know, the sub suburbs that are on the suburbs of suburbs, 
uh, that are in fire areas where, you know, lots of homes are at risk. Um, I was looking at some stats recently, you know, up in Montana, for instance, even though the population isn't that big, just a little over a million people, 27% of the properties in Montana are at risk of fires. You know, 2 million homes in California are at risk of fires. That's more than double what it was 30 years ago in California. So we're, we're facing, you know, property destruction, which is making this a, an issue that is a lot of people are dealing with. But the answer isn't just to go out and clear cut forests or even <clears throat> clear, clear brush. Um, it's, it's much greater than that. I mean, these embers can travel miles and hit these homes. So, I mean, the, the new phase of this really is going to be looking at modifying homes that are being developed in those areas, stopping them altogether if possible, and uh, making sure that those homes aren't going to go up in flames, because that's what we're facing right now. And a lot of people are facing it. And insurance companies aren't raising rates on these homes. So people are going to continue to build because it's cheap. Uh, you know, urban areas are expensive. Um, it's still cheaper in certain parts of California to build in these areas. And the, the more that people do build in these areas, the more homes are going to be lost and ultimately lives as well. So you have the overwhelming issue of this climate crisis, which is, requires the really massive, immense long-term solutions. But you said, you know, we're, you know, California hasn't even hit really the active fire season yet. That's still next month or after. So what do you do like in, just in the short term to kind of make, you know, rather than, you know, long-term solutions would be like changing the way people build houses or where they're allowed to build. But what do you do like now in order to just... Well, I mean, I, I wish that there were short-term solutions. You know, I, they're really, the, the short-term solution, solutions really are just preparing people that are in these areas yeah. to evacuate, have centers sent, set up so people have places to go, resources available to them. And more importantly, when, when and if these properties burn that are in these areas, we shouldn't be rebuilding there. We should not be rebuilding in areas that have burned. I mean, you look up into the Paradise area in Northern California that experienced one of the most horrific fires in, in recent memory a couple of years ago, they're back, they're building in that community again. And that, and that community will have a fire again in the future. Will it be five years? Will it be in five months? We don't know, but it will happen. And we need to radically change the way that we allow development to occur in these areas or else we're going to continue to experience these things. And taxpayers are going to continue to foot the bill to protect these areas. I live in Houston more than, than anywhere else. And that's the exact same debate we have. We have over hurricanes and tropical storms and they've been mm -hmm. doing it for decades. You know, it's just wait, wait till one hits and then you kind of deal with it at that point, but don't do anything in the interim to yeah. stop yeah or you know just keep tearing down green space and putting up more asphalt so it's the same it's really the exact same issue i think the way you described it yeah and and you know i think the thing that's complicated when you talk about some of these things is you know it's the it's the people that are on the fringes that are the ones that are going to be the most impacted so sure. in the paradise area where the fire occurred you know, most of those people a lot of a fair majority were retired people that were dependent on social security they don't have a lot of places to go. They moved out of it. The, they sold their homes in Sacramento and other places so they can move somewhere and, and own it. And they don't have any options. So rebuilding is their only option. So we need to provide options for these people. Meanwhile, Kanye West in, in Malibu has a private fire service come and protect his home. You know, so it's a, 
the, the people that are going to be impacted the most are the ones that are the most vulnerable, of course, um, which is true for many different facets of, you know, climate catastrophe. Uh, but the, the one that is most prevalent in California right now are fires. But then again, we're all also going to be impacted by the smoke from these fires, no matter where you live. So there's that, that, that fact. No, nobody can ultimately escape it. Uh, not only that, but like with Portland, we were even seeing like the evacuation line getting into the suburbs of Portland, like, you know, living here in Berkeley in the Bay Area, there's like this understanding, yeah, we're impacted by smoke, but we just stay in and wear masks, whereas like we're not, we're safe from the actual fires. But like, it also seems like the fire continues to get closer and closer to like, maybe not in city centers, but closer and closer. Yeah, I mean, and then, you know, even up not far from you in, in Santa Rosa, you know, the fires made it through in Petaluma, Santa Rosa area. Vacaville. And, and I think that's going to continue to happen in, in places outside of Portland. I mean, it's, it's a tragic reality that they're now facing because in a lot of ways, a community like Portland, which views itself as very progressive, uh, very enlightened, they can't escape, escape these realities either. Um, and even though they live in a rainforest, the uh, fires are at their doorstep and they're going to continue to be. You know, and going back to Kanye, because I'm, I'm glad we always like to bring up our pop culture figures. Uh, you know, Kanye has his own private fire department or what have you. I remember back in, you know, I'm originally from Texas. I remember back in 2011, there were actually some pretty bad fires in, you know, just uh, east of Austin that burnt up towns like Bastrop, got pretty close to towns like Bastrop. And I, um, because I have a, I have a Facebook feed of Texas family and friends who are all like gated community conservatives, um, they were all like, pray for the people in the fires, pray for, you know, the fire departments. But like at that point, Rick Perry had actually so downsized the budget of the state that like there weren't as many fire services to be able to fight the wildfires. And so like austerity, you know, prayer is, you know, prayer is great, I guess, if that's what gets you through the day. But like, you know, the, the sort of like austerity that we've been seeing, you know, not just from the far right, governors like Rick Perry, but, you know, we see that from, you know, Democratic governors as well as like also having an impact. And so, you know, talking about climate resilience and how people who are like are going to in the short term are going to have to deal with evacuations and like go into safe places. There's also that's being taken away for the rich. Right. Yeah, it has. I mean, and I think what you're getting at is something that I think about and talk about a lot, you know, is that we need a radical transformation of our society to respond to the climate issues that we're going to be facing in the future. Um, it's, an, it's, a, it's a radical overturn of the socioeconomic structure in this country, as well as a complete reconfiguration of, of our cities and the way that we develop our lands, especially in the West where there's still a lot of open space. Um, and then of course, a radical transformation of the way we, what, what and how we consume fossil fuels uh, and, and how we get our energy. I mean, another, Another thing that I think a lot of people aren't, aren't really addressing from the, from the environmental left uh, when it comes to fire suppression or fire issues is that a lot of these fires are being caused by downed power lines uh, in California and a number of them in Oregon. They weren't, uh, <laughs> they weren't being started by anti-fascists out in Eastern Oregon. They were, you know, they were being started by power lines that were blowing over in these severe winds and causing and sparking flames. Uh, you know, in, in talking about that, it's not just about, you know, these rolling blackouts, turn off the power line, shut down the grid when the winds are picking up. 
it's about getting off of the grid, right? We, we in California, for instance, we have enough rooftops where we can have solar. You know, we can get into the politics of solar energy, but on, on, on a bare bones, we need to have the conversation about putting solar on every roof in Southern California and getting people off of the power grid. That alone will reduce the number of fires that we have every year if we can, if we were to move in that direction. And, and the same goes for the entire West Coast. Didn't PGE cause the, was it 2018 fires in California? Like yeah, now? and they had a massive settlement. Um, yeah. And they, they should have, as Ralph Nader said, they should have been drug into court on charges sure. of manslaughter. Sure. sure. And they were not. Well, you mentioned earlier that like I've, I've actually just re- I've participated in at least two blockades of PG&E's headquarters in downtown San Francisco in the last two years because of that. Yeah, that's great. Um, you mentioned earlier that kind of obviously the most precarious people are at risk on issues like climate change as well as you know everything else, um, which kind of talks about you know kind of a class issue, and you know every now and then you'll hear people talk about environmental racism, but it's not I think presented as a class issue quite as much. And do you want to kind of just talk a little bit about that, how people who are already vulnerable, who are already kind of living in precarity, are even more at risk now because of all these massive, you know, kind of environmental catastrophes, whether it be hurricanes in Houston or wildfires in the West? Sure. I mean, traditionally, I think we've talked about environmental justice issues, environmental racism issues as urban issues, right, where someone might live next to a refinery or a uh, toxic chemical plant or next to a little stream where there's you know, dumping going on, a super fun site. Um, but more and more as we're dealing with these other issues like wildfires, places like Eastern Oregon, uh, very conservative communities in, in large part, um, rural communities, Trump supporters are getting burned out of their homes. I mean, and, and so the rational reason is let's, let's not look at the science of what's happening here. You know, let's, the rumor mills start and that's why these crazy radicals from Portland come out, can't, must have come out here and started these fires. But, you know, that's, that's still a minority, I think, of the people out there and how they think. Um, and coming from Montana, I can attest to a lot of people that still are in denial of climate change, climate catastrophe, yet are on the front lines of it, right? So I think as these things progress, as our experiences in this new reality evolve, more and more people that are on those fringes that are vulnerable people um, are going to realize that this is definitely what, what's causing it, number one, and that it's affecting them disproportionately, number two. And I think that when, when that awakening happens, and I think it's our responsibility as environmentalists, as uh, leftists, to, to spread this information, to make it clear that there are class dynamics involved here. And it's not just places, you know, in India and uh, Syria, or it, it's happening in our own states, in our own communities. Um, and I think it's going to become more apparent as these issues unfold. Real quick, before we get into the next question, I'm going to do a quick station ID, as we like to call it here. Uh, folks, you're listening to Joshua Frank, investigative reporter, environmental reporter, co-editor of Counterpunch on the Green and Red podcast. If you want to support this podcast, because we don't take corporate money, I guess that goes without saying, uh, you can go to patreon.com backslash green red podcast and become a recurring donor, or you can make a one-time donation at greenandredpodcast.org, our website, which has a donate link. Uh, And then please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And 
as always, this, uh, this interview will also be on YouTube. And so please go to our YouTube channel, Green and Red Podcast, and become a subscriber. Josh, you know, you've reported a lot in the last, uh, since I've met you, so I'm sure you're doing it a long time before I met you, but you reported a lot on, you know, extraction, fossil fuel extraction in the, in the West. And a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of states where there's a lot of coal extraction, gas extraction, oil extraction going on are like actually governed by Democrats, not Republicans. And so while some of these Democrats talk a pretty good game on like climate policy, climate change, they're, they're still allowing mass extraction going on in their states. And I wonder if you could just like talk a little bit about that hypocrisy for a minute. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, look at our own governor, Gavin Newsom here in California, who is lauded by the Sierra Club and other green organizations as one of the most progressive, environmentally friendly governors in the country. And meanwhile, this year alone, he has approved well over 300 new fracking permits in the state. He has permitted uh, something like 1,400 new oil and gas wells in this state. So while he's out in the burnt forest talking about the need to address climate catastrophe and uh, how climate is linked, climate change is linked to these fires and drought and understands at least on the periphery to, to understand the science of this, He's meanwhile bending over backwards to the oil and, and gas cartel. Um, so this is the hypocrisy that we dealt with during the Obama years. Of course, during the Obama administration, we became a net exporter of natural gas for the first time in decades. Uh, we largely, we, we became a net uh, exporter of oil. Um, our oil production increased largely because of fracking in the Bakken area of North Dakota. That was not uh, fracking for natural gas, but for oil. Um, but, you know, a lot of people still think Obama was, uh, you know, an environmental savior because he signed on to some nice accords. But meanwhile, the politics back at home yeah, uh, were the same as usual. And I believe, you know, if Biden wins in November, um, we're going to continue on that path. You know, there might be some semblance of reality uh, or some uh, sanity back into the Environmental Protection Agency. And there might be some positive things that happen there. But when it comes to the oil and gas stranglehold on our political structure and on these politicians. Uh, we have a long way to go to be to fix the problems, the underlying problems that are causing wildfires and other things that are exacerbating the things that we're already dealing with. And Gavin Newsom is one person that, uh, you know, he doesn't want to feel the heat and he's not feeling the heat from environmental groups, from the mainstream environmental groups. And that's a, a big, big problem. It's a big fault of the environmental community. Um, and it's uh, something that we need to take responsibility for. We've allowed him to get away with this. There's very, very few environmental groups in the state that are holding uh, Newsom to account. And that's an unfortunate reality. And it's, it's part of the problem. And those environmentalists, frankly, are part of the problem. One of my favorite topics. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, uh, supposedly Newsom this week was gonna, is going to come out with like some new big step around climate. But uh, he apparently had a press conference yesterday and they asked him about it and he, all his response was like, it's coming. And then I also saw, I actually saw this on your Twitter feed that, you know, uh, the Center for Biological Diversity and other groups are actually suing him over either improper or weak environmental reviews of the oil and gas permits. But like, this is like clearly not enough. And there's clearly not enough, like sort of like pressure going on the industry on, yeah. on other 
parties responsible for the industry as well as like the politicians. Yeah, I mean, in California, we there was a brief moratorium on fracking. You might remember until I believe March or April, you know, when all of our focus was on the pandemic, they were silently approving fracking permits all of a sudden. And a couple dozen fracking permits came out. So the Center for Biological Diversity is going after those permits, arguing that they did not go under proper environmental review. So hopefully they're, they're victorious. And I'm certain that they weren't, did not go under proper review because um, they were sort of sneakily uh, you know, sliding these in while we were distracted by a million other things, right? Um, and, but that's, that's sort of the MO of the Democrats and the neoliberal establishment in general is that they are more than willing to talk the talk, but when it comes to the real change, the real pol political and structural change, whether it's supporting a Green New Deal, a real Green New Deal and not a watered down one, they all, they back off of it. They, they're, they're afraid of being labeled a socialist. They're afraid of being labeled as a radical environmentalist um, for whatever reason. But meanwhile, fires rage, droughts continue and uh, oceans are rising. I mean, there's, there's very, very, very few people left <laughs> that, that I talked to, even those that were deniers at one point about what's going on that don't believe, number one, that we're having a crazy shift in our climate, but number two, that humans are greatly responsible for it. So there's the, that disconnect, I think, is, is shrinking um, between our actions and the, the world around us. And I think that the, the solution that the Democrats, neoliberals would prefer would be things like market-based mechanisms, like carbon trading, setting up these like sort of systems where they like buy acres of rainforest so they can continue polluting in places like Richmond, California. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the offset market itself. Is, <laughs> well, I, I, I still, every time I have this argument with the free market, you know, nutcase, I just, I'm like, well, give me one instance where the market has fixed a social or environmental problem. You know, they have a, a small argument when it comes to acid rain and the, uh, you know, the cap and trade issue. But uh, ultimately, when you look at the data, it's not there. The, the market does not fix problems. It, it has never fixed problems. It exacerbates problems because profit is the motive. And when profit is the motive and environmental destruction is the result, uh, profit is gonna win every time without regulations. So we need a radical shift in our ideology as well. And of course, capitalism is the, you know, it's the backbone of all of the problems that we're facing today. One thing, actually, one thing that I've kind of been thinking about uh, since the fires is uh, right before the fires happened, we were seeing like this sort of like social political conflict going on and particularly in the streets of Portland, right wing militias, as well as the police. I actually have friends uh, in court, I've seen in Corbett, Oregon, who are posting about armed right-wingers stopping cars, checking IDs, asking people their business in the community. Um, how would you say that climate change is exacerbating this current, that particular part of the political crisis that we're in? Well, I mean, I think that it goes back to a little bit what I mentioned before, which is that a lot of these communities that are long been in denial about climate catastrophe have long, in, in a place like Oregon, which I lived in Portland for most of my adult life, um, that, for instance, logging, the environmentalists have stopped the logging. 
not the fact that the, that the forests are almost all gone. That's what stopped the logging is corporate forestry and bad practices. But it's easy to blame the environmentalists, right? Um, so there's long been this divide and this hatred of, of, of what they view as outsiders coming in from urban areas to tell them how to live their lives, uh, whether it's their water rights, uh, their grazing rights, or you know, their forest practices. Um, and, and so I think that that has bled into what, what we're dealing with today um, with these armed militias you know, setting up checkpoints because they're literally afraid of radicals uh, coming in from places like Portland or other urban areas to ransack their homes or you know, light fires and, and ruin their way of life. You know, and, and this is a, a conversation, Scott, that I know that you've had, I'm sure, a million times of how do we bridge that divide? Um, how do we sit down and have conversations with uh, people that live off the public lands, whether it's, you know, people that are involved in the cattle industry or logging industries? How do we bridge those gaps? How do we find common ground and make change um, and, and not have it be this visceral sort of uh, divide? And you know the climate that we live in today, the political climate, the economic climate that's of course exacerbated by Donald Trump and the division that he bestows is very similar to what's happening in urban areas, you know, along the police lines with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's very similar what's happening in the rural areas, right? With the divide between rural Americans and urban Americans. Um, and, and these divides are very clear, and I think they're being, you know, the, they're being fueled by the Trump administration. Uh, so it, it goes back, it's not caused by Trump, it goes back generations in a lot of these areas, but it is a divide that needs to be overcome if we're going to, you know, address these issues. Uh, because, frankly, climate change is encroaching on these areas and will continue to do so. So they can continue to blame us. They can continue to blame outsiders for causing these things. But it's not outsiders causing these things. It's, it's the things that they're ignoring that are ultimately causing them. Yeah, you know, I, 10 years ago, as you know, I worked on a, a campaign around mountaintop removal coal mining and, and places like West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky. And one thing, there's many solutions. I don't know if they all work. And I think it's all like, you know, it ebbs and flows. But like, you know, there were a lot of like, what we would call like a rural organizing project. So there were like nonprofits, which were made up of people from not necessarily area and made up of people from the area who went around and did, just did community organizing in some of these places that were really impacted by the mining, by the dirty air, the dirty water, et cetera. The, um, there's a organization in Eastern Oregon called the Rural Organizing Project, which like kind of operates along similar lines. I, I do think it's a, a long haul of a process in order to sort of work and sort of win that over. And it doesn't help that we have these right-wing politicians all the way to the top, which are like, you know, putting out misinformation, you know, spreading lies, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, just yesterday, Bill Barr, as I'm sure you saw, you know, deemed New York and uh, Portland, you know, as anarchist. In Seattle. In Seattle. In Seattle, yeah, as, as, as anarchist havens. I have an axe to grind that Oakland was not <laughs> added into that, into the listing of anarchist jurisdictions. Yeah. I, you know, I'm upset that Los Angeles wasn't also included. <laughs> I guess we got more some work to do. Speaking of folks who've done like rural organizing and rural environmental organizing, uh, during the fires, uh, environmental organizer champion, really, um, and I, I may mispronounce his last name, George Adia. 
uh, who was yeah, Atia. Mm-hmm. Atia, Atia, my bad. Yep. I'm sorry. You know, he, it seems like they think he's died. Uh, I may have seen an update yeah. this morning that said they found his they, remains. Yeah, they found, they, they located his remains over the weekend. Uh, George was a, a, you know, a forest defender in the, in the eighties and nineties and probably right up until the end. Can you talk, uh, talk a little bit about his life and legacy? Sure. Um, the Opal Creek area uh, in Oregon, which is near Salem, um, and it's one of the most intact old growth forests in the Pacific Northwest. It's, 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 me- it's beautiful, it's mesmerizing, and it's long been deemed as sort of one of the jewels of Oregon. Um, but that jewel was under threat uh, at one point by loggers. Um, George, who is the nephew of a former governor of the state, uh, was from that area, from that community, um, from a logging family. And he hiked that area and spent time in that area as a child. And when it was under threat, he essentially stepped up. And he, along with a group of others, uh, went through, they, they, they basically sat down and, and said, how are we going to stop this from happening. And without getting it too complicated, they, um, or for me to explain too much, they, they essentially decided that they're going to make a hiking path through the area that followed along some animal tracks. Uh, George was not pleased with it. He didn't really like that idea, um, but he realized in order to protect it, we have to prove that humans are, are enjoying it and using it. And so they literally went through um, and created a hiking path in this area that was f- virtually untouched. And ultimately they, they went over and stopped the old growth logging from happening and, and had it deemed as a state wilderness area. And George spent his life educating people about the Oregon forest, um, about conservation and was largely seen as one of the icons of the Northwest environmental movement. And, you know, he was, he was an outsider. He wasn't one of those mainstream environmentalists. He'd, he'd never, you know, he didn't serve on some executive board. He didn't get a six, six digit salary. Um, it was grit. It was old school organizing. It was the old earth first mentality that ultimately saved Opal Creek. And unfortunately, one of the massive fires that ripped through Oregon a couple weeks ago uh, encroached upon his house, burned his house down, mm-hmm. um, and they couldn't find him for a couple weeks. They didn't. And his his daughter had heard from him at one point during the week of the fires, and he felt pretty safe because number one, that it, there there really wasn't much evidence that fires had been through the area at any time in recent history, uh, maybe in the last few hundred years. Um, but nothing recent. Um, they, they, you know, a lot of people that live in these, these forest communities of, of Oregon, even those that are aware of the danger of fires in other areas, never really thought it was going to come, um, come into their communities. And I think George was one of those people. Um, I, also, I think George was one of those people that wasn't going to go down without trying to protect his home. Um, but he, he talked to his, his daughter and his daughter didn't they didn't seem concerned the fires at that point were within like two miles of his home but overnight as you know these fires and with with big winds can move very very quickly and it ripped through the canyon he lived in 
and destroyed his home and others as well. Um, and just it was until last weekend they could get in there to assess some of the damage um, and, look, and look for his remains and they, they did find him. So he, uh, he, he burned in the, 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 the forest that he worked so hard to protect. Um, but with that said, you know, that, that area, um, I think Opal Creek, you know, it, it, it houses some of the oldest Douglas fir groves in the world, frankly. And from the, the news I'm hearing right now is that those, much like the redwoods up in Northern California have survived a lot of fires, um, it looks like the Douglas firs may have survived. Um, and I think that's a testament to letting nature run its course. You know, the, the fires largely the ones that have been, you know, the, the most dangerous are the ones that are in these areas that are regrowth areas that were clear cut at one point gone in with a monoculture, uh, almost like a tree farm grown and they all burned because they're all the same age, they're younger trees. Um, but the, the, the forests that are older, the more intact forests uh, are healthier forests. And those are the ones that are more able to survive these catastrophic events. Um, so in large part, what's left there today, George is a testament to that. And, and I think, you know, I think we can all learn a little bit from that kind of grit and activism. He was from that community, he understood that community. He lost a lot of friends in that battle, but it took decades and now he's deemed a hero even by those that he grew up with. Um, a couple of times you've referenced kind of the tension between environmentalists and, and workers, right? That's always, they were always kind of presented as a clash there. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, here in Youngstown, people often blame, you know, environmental regulations is one of the problems as well, right? You can shut down a factory and move abroad or whatever. What kind of stuff are these groups doing to kind of reach out and kind of show that there's, there's common interest there and that uh, you're kind of working for the same thing? You know, it's a constant battle, I think. Um, I think that there are areas uh, when you're talking about forest issues, for example, that there are sustainable forest practices. Um, and I, I think, you know, more so than before we get to trying to change the culture of those industries, I think understanding why those industries are suffering today, which is really the corporatization of those industries, uh, and it's not regulations that have caused it in large part, I think that's a real, the first step before we can start talking about the transition to new economies and new, you know, new industries, um, which I think the, you know, parts of the Green New Deal start to address some of those, those factors. Um, but in the Northwest in particular, you know, forest, my wife's family was, you know, from the forest industry. And I, I remember talking to her grandfather who passed away, but he was in his late 90s. And he was one of the men that went go up into these beautiful old growth forests and map the road that was going to go up there to log. Um, so clearly we butted heads on things. But, you know, he was in his 90s and his his perception of reality was pretty interesting. I mean, he ultimately blamed environmentalists, but he had just as much anger for Weyerhaeuser that came in and bought out his town. So uh, what, what's the bigger, who put him out of business? It wasn't, it wasn't the environmentalists. I mean, I, I wish that we had that much power, uh, and, but traditionally we have not. But ultimately there's, you know, there's only about 5% of the intact forest left in the Northwest. It's been overlogged, it's been overused. So, you know, I think before we start talking about how do we shift to this new sort of job market for, for individuals and trades, um, 
we start, we have to have a, a historical understanding of what's put us where we are today. And that's lacking. Uh, you were Red State Rebels like what, 10, 12 years ago. Do you see kind of a growth in that kind of resistance in places where most of us wouldn't assume that it would be? Oh, no, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, uh, you don't have to look far to, to see, you know, something like Standing Rock, for instance. You know, that was a, a radical catalyst, probably the, the biggest environmental event that in the North, North America that we've experienced in the United States, at least, that brought together different cadres of people and I think was an igniter for this new environmental movement that is not based in, in, in any urban area. It's not based in, you know, it's based in an indigenous rights movement as well. Um, it's a very, very powerful movement and it's happening in a red state. It's happening in one of the most adverse states to environmentalists that there is. And that, the bravery of that is, you know, I think a testament to the importance of it. And I, I see that that's happening in other places as well. It's Scott's involved in so many of these, these projects. Um, but it's a, it's a hopeful sign. But it's one that is definitely predicated on people that have been there and done it in the past you know, like Mike Roselle and, and fighting mountaintop removal in West Virginia. You know, there's a lot of these, these people and a lot of these groups that have been working really hard in, in making positive change environmentally in places that uh, aren't very friendly to uh, our kind. <laughs> and I come from the, one of those areas and I, the, I have the utmost respect for people that work in these rural communities. Um, and, you know, George Atia was one of those people. Uh, he happened to be from that community, so he wasn't an outsider, and I think that benefited him. Um, and I think that also benefited the movement in Standing Rock, that people that were fighting for the, the rights, the, those water rights were from that area. And they, they owned that. That was their historic and indigenous lands. And, you know, once we get people like that on our side, I think, uh, like George and others that were in these industries and working to reform those industries or change those industries is, is a really good first step. And, and I think when we stop sort of with that outsider mentality that someone's coming in from the Bay Area, someone's coming in from, a rural, you know, from Portland to tell us how to run our land, I think that the number one thing is finding allies in those areas to begin with. Standing Rock was definitely like a, a watershed moment as far as like mm-hmm. fighting fossil fuels goes, which is also why I would say that the fossil fuel industry has responded so strongly where they've passed you know, they've been the ones lobbying for legislation to outlaw Standing Rock style protests in many states, like at least 15 at this point. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, uh, it scares me, but it's also like, to me, it's the Gandhi, you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you. And they're definitely like very concerned about the power of our movement. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, what we're able to do, yeah. even though they don't always want to admit it. Or, or they will lose face if they admit it. Yeah, I mean, they enact these laws because they're afraid of us, ultimately. Yeah. If they weren't afraid of us, they would ignore us, uh, but they can't ignore us anymore. And that's, um, you know, it's a real powerful thing that I think even 15 years ago was a little bit, I, I don't think that we would have seen this coming. Um, you know, and you, you can go back to, the WTO protests in Seattle, going back to the labor and the environmental movement coming together under the guise of, you know, fighting globalization and what that was doing, not only to the environment, but to, to workers' rights as well. You know, there, there was some, that, that, that movement, of course, got derailed by 9-11 and the Iraq war and kind of got morphed into the anti-war movement or what there was of one 
but I think that's going to come back around. And I'm really excited about this new generation of activists. Uh, I think that they are brave. I think that they are creative. I think that they aren't anchored by sort of some of the historic problems within the, the mainstream movement. Um, and it's kind of inspirational to see that a lot of these young kids are, are, are coming to the forefront because uh, frankly, they understand the problem in much greater detail than a lot of the elders do. Um, because they have never, you know, experienced anything other than what they're living in. And they, they are afraid of what's to come. Um, so it's, yeah, it's inspirational. And uh, I'm hopeful. And I think Standing Rock is, was a very hopeful event. And they're not tied to the institutions like the non the environmental nonprofit industrial complex, like, which, which for too long has been the sort of like, prison in itself is like the strategic architects of all of this. But like, it's, it's really when when like people not tied to them just get fed up and start doing things, whether it's a standing rock or whether it's in the streets of Portland and Seattle and Kenosha and Minneapolis. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that's going back to standing rock too. And what you're saying, Scott is I totally agree. It's it's, I feel like there's been this shift away from following the mainstream environmental movement and mainstream groups. And, and it's become a more eclectic egalitarian movement the climate justice movement there are some leaders of that movement perhaps but there's no there's no broader organization it's a little bit more um it's much much more diverse and it's it's much younger and it's less hierarchical and i think it's much more impactful as a result it's much more diverse than the people who work in the institutions <laughs> certainly yeah <laughs> certainly uh, uh Couple, couple final questions. Uh, you're the co-editor of, of Counterpunch, and you've written a number of, written and co-edited a number, number of books. Uh, do you want to talk for a minute about the importance of left independent journalism in these dark and challenging times that we're in? Sure. I mean, I think it is similar to this conversation we're having about the environmental movement, um, the mainstream environmental movement versus the scrap, the grassroots movements, and Counterpunch. And other, there's a few of us out there, other sites as well, that are providing an alternative to the mainstream narrative that is on, you know, the New York Times or other places. We give voice to people that generally wouldn't have an opportunity to have a voice. Uh, that I think that's one of the really cool things about Counterpunch. Um, and we're also an international magazine. You know, we have writers that are in Palestine. We have writers that are in, you know, China writing about their experiences there. Uh, and it's going to be experiences that you're not going to read about anywhere else. So the power of that is, is pretty great. And I, I've noticed that, and it's a fortunate thing, you know, our writers, are, there's a lot more younger writers, there's a, there's a lot more activity going on. And it's not just this old white man, male, <laughs> uh, leftist movement anymore. And I'm, I, I think that's very promising. And I'm, I'm glad that Counterpunch can play a small role in that. Uh, and, you know, we, our, our traffic is sky high. And I, I also really appreciate having a venue like Counterpunch where uh, diverging points of view can come together and clash and sort of hash it out. And those sorts of things don't really exist on the left so much anymore. Um, the classic sort of uh, debates that used to happen maybe in the nation, the pages of the nation don't really exist anymore, but Counterpunch is a platform for, for people um, to come together and argue and hash it out. And, you know, there's a lot of these things that we don't all agree on. And it's a, how do we move forward? And I'm glad that we can play a role in that. 
and you've written some great pieces for Counterpunch. And, you know, I, I also really enjoy that we can have anything from a uh, culture, you know, movie review to covering the Assange trial to Standing Rock to, you know, the wildfires. I mean, we cover it all. And that's, it's, it's good. That I don't think that we're weighted down by any sort of dogma. Um, and I, I like that as a creative force on the left. And, and one that's fun too. I mean, as, as we all know, like you can get pretty depressed about all the shit going on, but we need to understand that we're a community of people and um, there's still a lot to go out there and fight to save and get out there and enjoy. And um, I think Counterpunch is one of those places we can still come together and enjoy each other and, uh, and hope, you know, hope that we can come together to fight for a better future. That's what we try to do on this, you know, give a voice to people who otherwise aren't going to probably be well recognized or even be heard. And, you know, it's been encouraging the last couple of years to see, uh, <clears throat> you know, a lot of new new people emerge too. You know, Steve Horn, we had on a couple of weeks ago, uh, Mike Alex Payday Report, which kind of has been great in terms of tracing work actions and strikes. So it's encouraging, you know, it, because, you know, the left tent style has always kind of operated on the star system too. You have these kind of star journalists and, we listen to them and they're centered in, you know, kind of quoted in the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Guardian. And so it's kind of cool to have this kind of other real grassroots, you know, kind of journalism going to. And yeah, a great. you guys provide a great service. I mean, I'm not going to be <laughs> invited on it. I've, you know, I've been on MSNBC, but that's not a you know venue I want to go on. Um, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of people in my profession, if that's what it's called, that feel like once they start getting quoted in the New York Times, they've made it. Uh, I've, yeah. <laughs> I've never had that, uh, those ambitions. Um, <laughs> so I'm happy to come on and talk to you guys anytime. It's the, you know, the, I'm just sad I never got invited to be on Hardball before Chris Matthews got <laughs> sent out of there. Like, especially after that, what he said this week about how presidential oh. Trump, Trump is. Um, I, the other <laughs> thing I actually feel about the, about the fun is that I, you know, snark banter all that sort of stuff uh i i feel like it's like something that actually can be missing from a lot of left spaces like humor and so yeah, i think i think that's definitely like an important piece that all of us have been contributing as well um i have one last question unless bob has anything else no I'm, i was just gonna say i'm always laughing at like the young turks and crystal ball but that's probably not what you meant <laughs> <laughs> i think it's because their humor is no, i think it's because <laughs> They're full of shit, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Laughing with them, not at them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> As my mom would say. Uh, you know, Josh, you're you're a bit of a music aficionado, and at least the last couple of years, you've done an end of the year uh, albums of the year list on Counterpunch uh, every December, New Year's. Uh, are there like so? We've been sort of like cooped up for like six months now. Uh, are there any? Do you have any uh, recommended like top? pandemic albums you've been listening to recently um sure i mean uh you know i it's I, i'm biased because they're really good friends of mine but a, a band called mapache um they're sort of a cosmic country duo um folksy and they have a new album out that's fantastic mapache um i've also been listening to uh waxahachie who's who's fantastic she has a new album out and her name's Katie. Uh, and then the Fiona Ap Apple album, I think, I think it's going to be deemed the best album of the year, no doubt, 
because it encompasses it's not a, it's not a comfortable album it's it's a chaotic album it's a stressful album but i think it encapsulates ex everything in the emotion and the mood of everything that's going on right now in our culture um and i think that it's uh 10 years from now we'll look back and say wow that really is the like the album of that time and uh anyway i'm not going to be I'm, i'm certainly not the only one that's saying that um but you know as, aside from like the albums it's it's been kind of cool to I, i know that a lot of musicians and writers and other people of course are going through really tough times i mean right now venue owners bar owners uh, bands aren't able to tour so they're really struggling and it's been interesting and to see their creativity come out in other ways, uh, doing little, you know, live performances through these different outlets. So, and I would just say anybody out there that is a fan of music or art in general, um, try to support these artists that are uh, charging, they might charge five bucks for a free live concert online, but, but they're not out there making money, they're not touring, and this is the way that we can support them. Um, and so it's been, it's been fun to see, I've been able to see a lot of people in their living rooms playing songs that I love. And that's been kind of cool. Uh, so there, you know, there's little positives that come out of this as well, but we all have to, you know, we can't expect uh, or wait for the, another, for Trump or, or the Democrats to fix this situation. We have to be in it for each other. So, you know, when it comes to the bands that we all love and the music we love, uh, that makes our culture interesting. Uh, we need to support them as much as we can. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for having me. Folks, you've been listening to Joshua Frank, investigative reporter, environmental reporter, co-editor at counterpunch.org. You've been listening to the Green and Red podcast. If you want to become a recurring donor, go to our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast, or make a one-time donation on our website, greenandredpodcast.org. You can listen to us on, excuse me, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then you can see a, a video version of this interview on YouTube, our YouTube channel. Uh, it's been great talking today and uh, we look forward to talking again soon. Bye folks. Bye.